Burks, glorious Burks. There's nothing like them. When you're stuck inside, they'll transport and excite you. Keats or well under T Roy, T Sally is crap. Oh, Burks, glorious Burks, wonderful Burks, glorious Burks. Hello again, everyone. This is uh, Dan from Burley Fisher Books, inaugurating our second podcast. Today, I'm joined by our very own Sam Fisher. Hi there. And our very own So Mayer. Hey. Um, so we've been very busy since the last podcast. I've spent a lot of time uh, chilling out and playing Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> 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 and and reading and uh, as well of course uh, yeah and what have you been reading <laughs> tell uh, everyone easter egg guidelines on yeah, the red yeah, dead yeah. redemption 2 talk boards <laughs> oh dear um what have we all been up to sam what what, what have you been doing uh well we've been incredibly busy doing uh, a lot of the home delivery orders going out yeah. by bike which i should say we're recording this on the first day of lockdown, so we won't be doing that anymore. Um, and but also fulfilling orders by post, which at the moment we are still able to do. Uh, so thanks so much to everyone who supported us in this weird and difficult time. Uh, we've also had this new feature of guest bookseller recommending yeah. people's next reads on Twitter. So yeah. I want to say thanks very much to Arenison Akoji, uh, to Max Porter, and to Kit Callis for supporting that. So we've had a great response to that. And I think, yeah, it's been keeping us entertained. I never thought I'd have anything positive to say about social media, um, but this has actually been really nice. So, uh, yeah, thanks to all those people. <laughs> so what have you been up to? How are you, how are you coping, with, uh, coping with the lockdown? Well, I've been uh, impersonating Burley Fisher on Twitter. So I think... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've written the phrase, hit this payment link uh, more times than I ever thought I would. But, you know, we use the word fulfilling uh, about orders. That is what a distributor do. But it also has been incredibly, like, weirdly fulfilling to just yeah. have this chance to talk to, like, brilliant writers like Irenison and Max and a publisher like Kit about books, about the books they're really passionate about. And yeah. so many of them are published by small presses. And readers are really excited about that as well, finding out about things that maybe they wouldn't have heard about. So I think it's been really amazing to feel that we're all pulling together to make sure yeah. there's like a, a, a healthy small press, small uh, bookstore thing. I don't want to call it an industry, ecology. Yeah. When, we, when we get out of this, yeah. So in between doing all that, I've been reading like one page at a time of Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon Jane. So it's going to take me the oh, next yeah. two, 240 years to finish it. <laughs> yeah, um, I just started the Hilary Mantel book and I similarly, but it is, it's pretty good. I mean, yeah. I've forgotten how good she is, but God damn, she's pretty good. <laughs> it's, it is pretty weirdly uncannily lucky that both of those books, like Black Leopard in Payback and Mirror in the Light, publication date just before uh, coronavirus hit. Because mm -hmm. I, I think they're going to be giving a lot of people a Are lot of Are you saying that this is... This is, is <laughs> the large publishers got together and It's almost like a new... Okay, so, so so who have we got uh, joining us today? Well, speaking of uh, books that you can really get lost in uh, during this time when you have time to read, if you have time to read, we have Preeti Taneja, author of uh, We That Are Young, which was published by Galley Beggar uh, in 2017. Woo -woo. Yeah, big up. Uh, weighs in a, uh, an amazing 553 deeply satisfying pages. Surprise uh, writer. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's about a family on the brink it's about a nation on the brink it it feels very timely as it had since it was published in 2017 it won the desmond elliott prize uh and was nominated for a shit ton of other prizes as it serves um and we're Preeti's also the co-founder of visual verse she teaches creative writing we're going to chat about 
that a bit what you can do to be creative while you're also feeling really distracted and anxious at home um and partially we're going to do that because she's ironically just started a job as lecturer in prose fiction at newcastle university which she will be starting on skype so <laughs> we're gonna give we're gonna give her a little a little chance to crack out her lecturer skills as well awesome awesome well um on that very enticing note i think we'll pass over uh to you two and get on with the show yeah great we're gonna hear a little bit from we that are young awesome So I'm going to read an extract from the third book of We That Are Young. Um, The book's told in five voices and one of those belongs to Radha and she is a kind of it girl. Um, She's the daughter of, she's a middle child of a very, very wealthy Indian business tycoon. And in Shakespeare's King Lear, she correlates to Reagan, but she, um, she's a very complicated character who has she's quite narcissistic i suppose but she's also a very very intelligent young woman um that everybody underestimates and she is dealing with a lot she's got some childhood trauma and she sort of pings between her father her husband and her lover jeevan um and all of this sort of comes to a head when she takes part in a very, very violent episode in which somebody gets blinded. I don't think I'm spoiling the story for anybody um, who knows the play, but it's but it's a question of the lid coming off her rage that she's been suppressing and her fear and her self-loathing in a way, which has been building up for a very long time. Um, and the scene that I'm going to read takes place when she's on her own in her hotel room, after that event. She wakes, she sleeps, she wakes. The clouds roll towards her in shadows of pale gray silver, deep blue. Fishes of light slice through the blinds, glittering gold like that day in Goa. There are waves of dark purple, then flicks of yellow again. A sky so bruised it covers the city, swallowing the earth. Her sister texts her, don't worry. She hates Gargi for making her hurt Ranjit uncle and for having a husband. For being older, for taking Jeevan back to Delhi with her, she hates Jeevan for going. She hates Boo and most of all, she hates Ranjit uncle for leaving her alone. And she cannot explain this to anyone because the only man who might understand, Radha thinks, and here she stops, is her father, Bapuji. He is not speaking to her either. She hates him most of all. Too busy getting the whole nation against her. She is alone. She has always been so, since she was young. The cushions of the suite watch her and whisper, so does the sofa, the antimacassars. Pieces of her own skin stripped from her. The carpet smothers her steps. She does not remember what she should say or care about. From the bar she takes the bottle of scotch, the vermouth, the cognac, the vodka, good bottles all. She lines them up and begins. A toast to Boo Boo, shot. A toast to Jeevan, now rich as a king, shot. A toast to Sita, wherever she is, double shot. To Gargi, shot. To Nannu, shot. And to her mother, long burned and scattered, shot. Where is Nannu? In the room, here, surely, her mutterings jangle with the shadows, a skeleton of words. All this shall pass as it has passed, as it is passing and come again, and every wife whose husband is a bear shall bear no children but the children of owls. To it, woo! The glasses on the bar take up her refrain, as clear as if she was in the room. Rather chants the words herself, and toasts to the windows, to her own translucent self. To rather shot. Radha writes her own eulogy on company paper. She will send it to Barun J. Bharat, recently promoted senior happenings editor at the Times of India. Here lies Mrs. R. Devraj Balraj, a widow aged 28, a living death for a motherless girl. 
This is our Devraj Balraj, abandoned by her father, a blinder of men, murderer of a servant in the name of honour, who cannot do a wife's basic duty and keep her husband alive. Rampaging, marauding, she drinks the gold liquid and the clear, the white wine, the red cherry liquor, the disgusting sweet Kalua lurid in the blue glass. On her lips, shivs poison she cannot hold in her throat. See, see, all downed, all drowned. She paces as she drinks and chants like a yogi, invoking the book according to Nanu to shut out the sound of men dying. Then she opens Bubu's Kashmiri box. There is no queen of diamonds to cut the white powder. She dips her finger and licks and licks a meal made of pure white snow. Shh, say the cushions. Shh, says the bed. Calm, say the curtains. You must try to be calm. She cannot listen to them. Eyes blazing and blood red from tears. She forgets she is human, turns jackal. Naked, breasts swinging, hair wild, she finds a pair of scissors and goes to hunt, slashing at every soft thing in the room. Catch the chiru. The blades shred the sofas, the chaise lounge, the curtains, the pillows. Aye, aye, she thrusts, she rips. Nothing has the same give. Nothing makes the same soft slurp of eyes giving way to the splintered end of a bone-topped cane. Only the thrill as the blades plunge in. Then the floating softness of feather and down. When she is spent, she sits on the floor in the fluttering ruins. Sweating and bleeding from the tiny gashes where the scissors have caught her, she crawls into the gutted remains of the bed and picks up the phone. To whoever answers in the kitchen, she croaks, Bring me a pot of first flush tea and a plate of rose macarons. Thank you um, so much for that incredible reading from We That Are Young, Preeti. Welcome to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? I'm okay, yeah. I'm pleased to be here. Where is actual here for you right now? It is the isolation station. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Fair enough. We all exist in this sort of new virtual world, don't we? Um... So, We That Young came out uh, in 2017, which is a thousand years ago or two days ago, depending on which timeline we're currently in. And I remember the first season, it was out recommending it to a lot of people in general, but also saying to people, you know, when it, it gets to that time of year, if you're heading home to spend Christmas with a dysfunctional family, this is the book you need to read uh as you described in opening your reading it's it's a book about a family it draws on the the story the archetypes of king lear um in a very different setting one that's that's closer to us in many ways um and one of the reasons that i found myself recommending it is that at the same time as it is as you say excoriating about what it means to be upper class uh to have enormous privilege it also has a lot of compassion for the characters as members of a family of a dysfunctional family and i feel like that's something that probably quite a lot of people are thinking about right now maybe experiencing maybe rethinking their family relations and i just i wondered if you could say a bit about writing families characters and families with compassion It's such an important thing for me to have compassion towards myself as a writer, towards my readers and towards my characters. Um, And I think they're three interconnected but quite different things in a way. Um, The compassion towards myself allows me to fail and to keep on thinking about failure as a chance to push myself in new and exciting directions. So... um, you know, my definition of what it means to fail might mean writing a sentence that I don't like um, and then I'm allowed to leave it and then maybe come back to it or write a sentence that I think is great and then realise the next day that actually it needs to go and feeling okay about that. Um, And towards the reader, it means not assuming anything. So not assuming over-knowledge, not assuming under-knowledge, just trusting them to come with me on a journey and... When it comes to writing characters, 
especially if I'm writing characters which are not supposed to be that awful publishing term, likable or relatable, um, then what I'm actually trying to do is examine how we're all trapped in a very specific social structure. And that structure, I suppose, is capitalism um, and all of its tentacles, patriarchy, neoliberalism, religiously motivated um, or ethnic fascism, violence. And these are the things that are all part of what I'm critiquing through the compassion I show to characters who are caught in that system. Um, obviously, I'm trying to hold an elite to account in We That Are Young as well, um, because it is told from the point of view of power. I'm I'm so interested in in looking at power and critiquing power and billionaire power from the inside, rather than perhaps from the points of view of those who have nothing. Um, I think that's my my focus really as a writer. That's the positioning. It's not. It answers some questions I have about how to tell stories of, of poverty and deprivation. Um, taking taking apart the construction of power um, and the social construction that we're all bound in. So I, I think that's quite a long answer to what you're saying, but it comes from a place of compassion. And I think that um, leads me into the next question that I had sort of rereading uh, the book, thinking about doing this podcast and thinking about the incredible, you know, incisive, devastating critique of power that is in the book which for some people who might be listening to this watching how this crisis has unfolded and seeing how neoliberal democratic governments have abandoned citizens in favor of the economy um abandoned our health and welfare abandoned our community uh in favor of pursuing profits that the book is already searing with those insights but you know how do we I suppose, keep thinking in those political ways, even in this moment where we're trying, like almost on a minute by minute basis to face the changes in our own lives, to, to think about holding power to account and to think with global compassion as well for people who have been living in emergencies, living in lockdowns, living in the situation in Kashmir, for example, how do we not shut down? How do we use these insights that we're having? Oh, well, you know, I think discrimination is intersectional. And um, just because we're now in the middle of a global pandemic that is going to affect all of our lives, that doesn't mean that all of the other things we were all dealing with globally and as local societies or even just families or individuals can stop while we all focus on this. They, they just lock into each other. And, you know, all of us who are at home, locked down, are relying, and I'm here with you on this virtual space, relying on the internet to keep us connected, to keep us sane. We're worrying about relatives we can't see in different places. But we can't forget that there are places in the world, such as Kashmir, where the internet has been shut down for years. Mm -hmm. And even more so recently, because of a political decision by a major state which simply does not want those citizens to communicate with the rest of the world. And it's a form of, it's a form of torture. Um, I'd even go to go as far to say in this current situation, it could be murder. Um, mm -hmm. Those are very strong words and I'd totally stand by them. But, you know, locking down 8 million people in a military sort of situation and then not deny and then denying them also in a global pandemic access to high-speed internet or anything unable to communicate with friends and family and find out what the hell is going on mm -hmm. is just it leaves me totally speechless actually um it's interesting you know today i saw a piece in the new york times about cities under lockdown mm -hmm. <laughs> And I was astonished to see a picture of Srinagar in Kashmir, which was kind of captioned, Srinagar, India, a tourist oh. boat with no tourists. And I just think that is an extraordinary 
underhand way of propping up a regime which is basically murdering its own citizens or people they consider their citizens even though those citizens yeah. don't consider themselves to be citizens of India at all um we're kind of getting into nuances of politics which perhaps not all listeners will know but again I'm just not going to assume any knowledge or lack of knowledge but I think as we all focus on our very intense dilemmas that we all have to deal with now um we can't forget those we don't have even the privileges that we have in this situation absolutely and we can't stop paying attention and holding people to account um and we can't stop also trying to think about the unthinkable as you're describing that some of these situations even as we experience a minor and temporary version of them are unthinkable. And as you say, uh, in your introduction to the reading, one of the things that you wanted to do was think about some of the unthinkable acts that happen in King Lear, things that, if you've read the play, you feel familiar with that have almost been normalised, torture, murder, um, abuse, the abuse of the state. And I feel like a lot of people right now are trying to do that thing of thinking the unthinkable, whether they're doing it in their creative practice or doing it just in their daily life. How did you go about thinking the unthinkable? For example, in the scene of the blinding, like how do you sit down and and make yourself write that scene? I struggled a bit with that scene because of two things. The first one is that um, Obviously, it's such a famous scene in Shakespeare. So when you're taking on a canonical texts, you have to find ways of writing versions that stand on their own, as well as doing the things with the language of those texts that you love and appreciate. So it was hard. I had to do it in a lot of drafts to write my way out of Shakespeare in that sense, um, especially for that scene and the storm scene and a couple of other set pieces, big set pieces that happen in Lear. Um, the second reason it was difficult was because I'm writing from the point of view of the female character in that moment. And her journey in Lear, her childhood, is so obscured. And all we know about it is the way her father treats her throughout the play. And, mm -hmm. you know, what's interesting to me about Lear, one of the many things, is that it has some of the most violent anti-women sentiment that Shakespeare could conjure out of his mind. I mean, it is extraordinary violent against women. And when you start to think about a culture which allows that kind of rhetoric, which I think we still live in, um, you can begin to understand how that can impinge on a character's self-esteem growing up inside that world, um, locked inside that world in many ways and locked inside a body which is the product of that world and so from that kind of position of understanding I began to realize that once a woman like that is in a situation of heightened violence and extremity she might take a weapon in her hands and inflict some of that pain on someone who's been inflicting it on her for a very long time in a very kind of subtle underhand grooming type of way. It's so it's so powerful um not only to write that scene but to connect it to a writer who is positioned as in a sense the daddy if we can use that word <laughs> uh we're gonna use that word the daddy um and obviously there's been a bit of a meme going around on social media at the moment to make us all feel bad saying that Shakespeare wrote King Lear in quarantine. What are you going to do? do? And I'm not going to ask you that question because obviously the answer is eat biscuits. Yeah, because I've, I've, done, I've done my one. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've done. King, write King Lear, tick. Yeah. Uh, you're, the, you're exempt from that. But I am wondering, it, can you when, you, when you read King Lear as you were reading it and rereading it and working with it for the novel, is it a book that is about quarantine? Does it talk about quarantine? Does it talk about plague and its consequences? What what can we take from Leah now? Or what what would you advise us to take? There's so much you can take from Leah right now. Um, just watching the people in power kind of wrestle with the fact that they have taken too little care of this us. This society that we live in, in all of its structural discrimination, right to the bottom, where people who are um, relying on food banks, for example, in the area that I live in, might not be able to access those food banks because restrictions are on, you know, going outside in public gatherings and volunteers can't gather. I mean, 
you know, the, the nuances of how that this is all of the last 10 years of appalling austerity and underfunding of our public services from the NHS to prisons is going to come home to roost. And it's awful to watch. I mean, you, you know, that realisation that they have taken too little care of this. And then I think another um, quote for our moment is this understanding that if distribution can undo excess, then each man should have enough. Um, wow. And it's such a powerful realisation in the play made by a character who has had everything and has kind of had this awful comeuppance. He's been blinded. His own son is kind of leaving, leading him to the to the imagined cliffs of Dover where he's going to enact his own suicide. <laughs> I mean, it's so dark what happens in this play and how the children treat treat the grown-ups um, who should have who should have set them a better example. Um, but that that one about how you know society should be structured in such a way that everybody should have what they need to survive and a kind of equality that one is really coming home to roost right now absolutely it also makes me think about um one of your other projects or the fact that you're not uh, just a writer that isn't everything you do with your day you're also a human rights activist and have been for many years and that you brought these two aspects uh, of your practice together in an incredible website called Visual Verse which you co-founded with Kristen Harrison uh, is it I think it's five years ago but correct me if I'm wrong yeah uh, it's absolutely the resource we need right now because it's for readers and it's for writers. If you're a reader, there's five years of incredible short pieces that you can read. Uh, you can read them on your phone. You can take two minutes to read them at a time when in, when you're panicking or in between or you're just finding a moment for yourself. Each month you post an image and anyone who wants to is invited to respond, take an hour to write and write 50 to 500 words. And you've published incredibly distinguished writers. You've published people who are writing for the first time. So it's also this incredible work of democratization and access to being published, being part of a writing community, which we can see that the impact of austerity and now of coronavirus is making an ever more elite prospect who is going to be able to write, who is going to be able to publish. So I want to take a moment to shout out Visual Verse, encourage listeners to go and take a look at it. And I wondered if you could say a bit about the project and its aims and its community. Well, Visual Verse started in 2013. Um, so it's a bit longer than five years, it's seven years. And um, Kristen Harrison runs a contract publisher called The Curved House and The Curved House Kids. She's based in Berlin. And we met when we both worked at the same human rights um, NGO. Both of us knew we were going to um, pursue our own projects and she wanted to start this small business and I wanted to leave to become a fiction writer which had been my dream but both of us were really struggling to get our projects off the ground at that time we that are young was on submission to publishers <laughs> and that wasn't going very well so she kind of knew that I needed something to take my mind off it and to start being part of writing as process and rediscover that joy of just having a go um, she came up with this idea of having this beautifully designed website and curating a picture once a month and I would commission two or three lead writers who were, whose work we admire, um, who needed a boost or, you know, up and coming voices or leading voices. And then we open the site to the public on the first of each month. And the constraint is that you write 50 to 500 words in the space of an hour to this image. And we publish the best 100. Um, we get around, we have around 5,000 to 8,000 readers worldwide, I think. And it's Wow. All yeah, I know. It's crazy. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. When we first started, it was about 30, um, 30 people submitting that I would religiously publish every day. And it was just wonderful. It was like finding a group of people, group of friends. You know, I've never met most of them. Um, and what the aims of the project are for me is that I love to think about writing as process. And I'm a really big believer in demystifying ideas of genius. And I think showing your workings as writers, one of the most thrilling things that writing allows us to do. 
So I'm not really a realist writer in a way. Um, I think about the world as sort of absurd in lots of different registers. And I love the way that visual verse promotes and celebrates something which is so great about fiction writing that even though we all live in the same world and we might be undergoing this huge similar experience, we will all write about it in slightly different ways. And I think that's what visual verse um, celebrates. You know, every month we have a hundred pieces responding to the same image and they'll never be the same, but they will be in conversation with each other. Cause I think the writers at visual verse all look at each other's pieces and, and they get ideas from each other and they talk to each other online and you know, it's, it's fantastic. One reason that we really need visual verse is because publishing is still a gate kept industry. There's still a lot of cultural gatekeeping that goes on. And while we love and adore books and publishing, there are also some books that should never be published. And in the coming weeks and months, we may find new uses for those books. So we have a new feature on Burley Fisher Isolation Station, which is we're going to be asking the people that we talk to, which is going to be the first book that you use when the toilet paper runs out. <laughs> well, what I, is your toilet book? I just, I mean, I'm British Asian, and partly, you know, going to India all the time. So toilet paper or lack of it doesn't really bother me. I felt very well trained <laughs> in dealing with um, what most of the world does, in fact, which is use your hand and a lot of warm water. Anyway, um, something I never thought I'd say online. Um, <laughs> but probably the single most useful tip that we will put out on Burley Fisher Isolation Station. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I don't own a copy of this book. This is my caveat, since this is a an imaginary game. Um, the book that I would use first um, is written by a group of people, including my ne- named nemesis, Preeti Patel, and it's called Britannia Unchained. I'm laughing because this book is just so horrendously a celebration of everything that is the antithesis of what I stand for and what I believe in as a writer. It is just a celebration of neo-colonialist awfulness. And I think she is a disgrace. I mean, I just can't believe that I've waited all these years for people to get my name right and now they know how to say it because of her. It's just so... On that basis alone, the book should be used as toilet paper. Oh no! I mean, it just not not just that it, it it sets up a kind of divide and rule between good immigrants and bad immigrants. The good ones are the ones who are in other countries, kind of succeeding under post-colonial Victorian education systems, whereas the young people that this this Tory government has just abandoned for so long are set up as the bad immigrants and it celebrates the it mourns the end of the glories of empire which I just found I mean betrayal is the wrong word but I think there's a special place and we we've designated it yeah, in the toilet. Special place. Yeah. Do not this put... book. It's writers and it's publishers. Do not put printed papers or people or corporations in your toilet because it will bl- block it. Do you put them in a plastic bag, double bag it and leave it in your rubbish and do say thank you to your rubbish collectors yes, as well. They are, they are key workers. Yes. Thank you for tolerating our toilet humor there (laughs) we all need something to lighten the mood at the moment but we also do need books to read not just wipe our bums with we are a bookshop we do sell books for people to read um and it would be really remiss of us not to ask you um what you're reading at the moment so what uh what's on your what's on your desk what's by your chair okay so i um very lucky to have been in Kolkata in February and I was there as a writer in residence for a really extraordinary publisher called Seagull Books which is run out of Kolkata but they publish world literature in translation into English and I spent a week with them um, and came back with a whole pile of their books which are beautifully produced objects all designed and illustrated by their in-house designer mainly Sunandini Banerjee. Okay and so I came away with 
fiction of one of my favourite Indian writers, Maheshwetha Devi, and her books have titles like In the Name of the Mother, Choti Munda and His Arrow, um, Outcast, Bait. You know, she writes these very um, beautiful political anti-caste hierarchy stories about colonial era India. Um, and they're all being translated and illustrated and made into these books. Um, so I have a whole load of those to read through, as well as another seagull book called, which is nonfiction, um, called World Changing Rage, which I think is <laughs> quite appropriate. And that's that's a, that is um, translated actually by Katie Derbyshire, who is a German um, English translator. And founder of the Women's Translation Prize. Right, right. Um, and I think on the top of the pile, actually, to start with is called Bad Words by Ilse Ashinga, translated by Uliana Wolf and Christian Hawkey. Um, and I'm just going to read you the back because it's so beautiful. Please do. The rain which pounds against the windows. Here it goes again. The rain. We'll leave it. Rain keeps everything in its imprecise orbit. We'll stick with it so that we remains we so that everything remains what it is not, from the weather to the angels. This is one way to live and one way to die, and those who think this is not imprecise enough can keep experimenting along these lines. There will be no limits for them. Wow. Thank you for those, not just good words, but magnificent words. Yeah, they're not mine, but they are in my hands. Also for your world-changing rage, which... We could feel in the first reading and I think maybe um, present in the second reading that you're about to share with us as well. So thank you for your time, your generosity, your excellent words. And we look forward to reading what you write next. Thank you. I'm going to read a piece called Democracy is Coming, which is um, a piece that was commissioned by the Narcissus Foundation and the Public Theatre in New York for a festival called Democracy is Coming in May 2018. At the time, I was wrestling a bit with how to write about the experience of teaching in high security men's prison, which is a job, which is my job. Um, and I've been doing that for a few years. Um, I, I rarely talk about it in public because I keep it quite separate from my writing life um, out of respect for the people who haven't got the access to a voice. Um, and so questions of appropriation of voice and imprisonment and how to write about difficult experiences because I'm not really a personal essayist in any way. Um, concern me. Um, and then in November 2019, I was um, deeply affected by the loss of a colleague, Jack Merritt, who died in London Bridge at the conference organised by the organisation that I work for, Learning Together. And my colleagues and I, who are very close just had this experience of collective grief, which was very personal to each one individually and traumatic, but also experienced very much as a group and in a, as a town. And so I've been thinking a lot about collective grief in the last few months and trying to write about what that is. And of course, now we're all under a situation of being under siege in a certain way from the virus. This is something we're all going to have to think about how we market, what we do with it, how we separate our individuality and our personal experiences from the group as well as honour the group. Anyway, this is the piece, Democracy is Coming. You must leave the house even on the days it feels impossible to do so, and walk the city streets sold to concrete, wrapped against the commerce and the cameras and the cold. I teach fiction writing in a high security world. Look down, we all know the sewer covers are made shoeless in India. Look up at skyscrapers creaming white clouds. This is the middle and we live in it, caught between possibilities hovering. Think colour, think genitals, think skin, your singular prison. Underneath them, 
blood vessels, veins, hearts, our surging brains. If language is all metaphor, then war is a stage. Democracy is coming. Where can we live but here? In Washington Square Park, the sweet, pale children do down-facing dog. Breathe deeply, their heads hang between their legs. A poster says pottery is the new yoga. The earth is silent, bone dry, and the potter's field is vaulted terracotta underfoot. Today's class prisoners will learn story structure. First, we must pass through six sects of iron doors. Double locked, uniform, every body shadow coloured. Hope takes work, not only aspiration. And all the men, a life is here. There's a tall teenager who struggles to be gentle, and another one who dreams of being a girl. A dead man walking writes about his father, the beatings he received while trying to spell. Women screamed and were shot when he was 17 and lost it. He is inside for that. I want to go out, some days you stop me. The house is full of comfort and the spoils of far-flung places. The definition is the definers, not the defined. They promise me adventure any time. And these books I've yet to open are so alluring. There is a series set in Washington I could watch on my TV. I knew I had to leave, but I couldn't step to. I stood by the door in my coat and knitted scarf. My phone was in my hand. Each tiny cry set my senses alight. As I scrolled, I just became more petrified. Ten years passed, or so it seemed. There's a man in my class who loves to do close reading. He loves the lyrics of Eminem and the poems of Adrian Rich. He is more than his murder, his sister is quoted. He didn't shoot the gun, he bought it on a promise of love for the man who did. Words get through walls and nobody can stop them. He writes, two lifetimes have leaked from me since then. In the park, a young boy was high, ecstatic. His handlers sent him out in search of hits. His knife was used, he had no recall of it. A girl died. He's now a number, learning Proust. He writes a poem, Love Cake, and he makes us taste it. The deep-hearted spice of his mother's scent. Like so many here, he was twice barred from school. There are also a few others in my classroom. They have degrees in engineering, and some are very good at haiku. They tell me a word they dream of is azadi. It drills against the tongue, against the law. I teach them how to use the objective correlative. One says trainers, another says caps, another says miss, although I am his age. I tell him, it's okay, call me Cassandra. He says, miss, what about you? I look at him, I'm not supposed to answer, but I do. On my dressing table, there's a pair of diamante paste earrings, tear-shaped, given to me by a woman whose name I never knew. I was younger then, and everywhere mud was staining everything. I felt shards of glass and tin stroke my collarbones. We laughed, and for a moment we held hands. She wished me marriage and children to come soon. I never wear the earrings. This was years ago. It was February in the desert refugee camp. I was cold, reporting on conditions there. I took her story. No one ever stopped me. I ran. Hope requires hard work, I think she said. Last time I went to the theatre, I keep the ticket as a marker in a bright homemaking magazine. Something changed, though what I could not see. The play was about mixed lives, it ended gladly. The set was good, and there was so much laughter. I was invisible until the lights came on. Back home, I removed my makeup. That night I had a fevered dream. I was alive inside the white memorial city. I walked up many steps to read the walls out loud. Words scratched on marble, like something trying to get out. Such monuments have resonance, the Greeks understood. You told me to listen for echoes, and I knew it would not be enough. Today is the anniversary of the revolution. I step out, the sun is high, I feel it on my mud skin. 
as if for all of them, though that cannot be done. Of course we know our bodies are temporary. Of course we believe democracy is coming if a story has a beginning, a middle and an end. Okay, cool. What an amazing conversation we've had. Thank you so much to Preeti and thank you for so for that incisive and wide ranging discussion. Um, but to end stuff off, we really like that idea of toilet paper books. Um, we all have quite strong opinions <laughs> about bad literature here at Burley Fisher. Um, and I think uh, the Fisher in Burley Fisher has a uh, particularly strong opinion oh, about a writer. Gonna, let me go first, do you? I'm going to make you go first, yeah. Uh, with uh, what? The if, the toilet sat, if the toilet paper ran out, what would you right. uh, use? Set the scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm. Court short. <laughs> uh, well, I I think the collective works of T.S. Eliot. Toilets. Um, yeah, toilet sitter Eliot. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I don't know why, but he... he toilet dweller. Always kind of provoked a quite visceral hatred. Bog dweller. <laughs> Did they make you study at university, Sam? I did it in sixth form. Maybe, uh, maybe so, so maybe I'm just... You're, it's you're, a difficult you're... time for me. <laughs> <laughs> angsty, angsty wasteland boy. Is this yeah. a copy that has your handwritten notes from A-Level on it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's like, this is crap. I hate this. Um, so well, if it's not, very, not very insightful. <laughs> already covered in crap, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although I it's quite a slim volume, it didn't get that much to do. And I do feel like it would kind of be like wiping your ass with dead leaves. <laughs> a poetry. Of... Yeah. I think that well, was the original Elliot. first line of the wasteland. Wipe <laughs> yeah. your ass with Ezra, Ezra Pound really like took away my punchline there with, uh, with a poison, poison pen. <laughs> I've got a bit on him as well, but maybe I'll save that for next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's only a finite amount of content we have in this, and uh, we need to hoard it like uh, like toilet paper, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I should say, and uh, Anthony Hurley, our um, other bookseller, has joined this. I should have uh, announced him to begin with. But Yes, uh, thank you. This is an amateur operation, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Very uh, amateur. <laughs> Um, so my toilet paper book is uh, the complete works of Ian McEwen um, <laughs> I think that that man encompasses everything that is wrong with the English middle classes and uh, I'm <clears throat> using this platform don't, don't hold back Dan <laughs> <laughs> I'm using this platform which I've uh, built for myself to announce <laughs> not only is that what you've done? <laughs> That's what I've done. That's what I've done. <laughs> Not only would I use this book for toilet paper, but we are officially feuding. So, McEwen, if you're listening, I'm coming for you. Um, what, what, what particularly just all of? Just Well, it's just everything. It's just a smarmy any, bastard, Have you read any of his books? <laughs> <laughs> no, I say his name. It, it's not his books per se it's more him as a person that shot across the bow has fallen slightly short i think <laughs> i mean i would certainly like the amount of shit op-eds that he wrote for the guardian after yeah, that's it, being that's... like we as a liberal democracy like i know i know i know I know, I know, I know. Oh, God, that bloody, like, old Brexit book and it's Kafka and it's, it's just like, come on, man. Get a grip. Um... <laughs> so, Ian, if you do want to phone in. Um, yeah, please. Then Dan, Dan might <laughs> read one of your books. More than welcome on the show. Dan is in his bedroom in his boxers waiting. <laughs> um, so, so, what would you, uh, what's your toilet book? I'm just going to be really basic here uh, and be both narcissistic and practical. The least read book on my bookshelf is my PhD, which oh. I fucking paid to have printed and bound, and it just sits there. So, Dan, do you think we can it. cut in some, some tiny violins here? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I can like do the that. Most, I single most that. expensive book on my shelf. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling really good about that. So what's the, what's, what's the title of the thesis? 
of the feces. <laughs> <laughs> Do you name them, Dad? Too much. <laughs> Man, it's a, it's a, uh, there's a lot of room in the day. Does it really matter at the moment? <laughs> it's a pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mr. So, Mr. Uh, Mr. Hurley, have you have you decided on one yet, or are you still uh, are you still having an early? No, I've sort of come on to an idea that yeah, I think everything non-fiction that Don Patterson writes is just an utter waste of space. <laughs> <laughs> like there's this book called The Poem he wrote, which is like a thousand oh, pages, God. and it's just oh. like complete. That no, last as well. Yeah, that last. So <laughs> yeah. I, was, I think yeah, I'd probably take that. To the on, Ian. To the <laughs> old come on. All these books are for sale as well. I should... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can order that through the shop. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, you know, Don Passon's poetry to treasure, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some I really love, but I just feel that when he um he goes off on one about um you know form and decides to write almost 2,000 pages on it. It's just a bit of a yawn. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. sorry, sorry, Don. <laughs> I love Nil Nil. And I, and I like Rain. Yeah. But I don't like the poem. Okay. Is it's Bog a... Roll. <laughs> it's Bog Roll. It's Bog Roll. <laughs> Moving on to Brighton. I'm sure it's actually really good. <laughs> no, no, no! Don't no take back. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Don't climb down. Don't climb down, man. Like, come on, um, right. What are we doing? Well, uh, is that everything now? I think. It is. Well, I think we were going to ask Anthony. Who gonna, uh, he's going to be bringing on the podcast next. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Don't sound so happy, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, Dan's just falling asleep. <laughs> gets to me and he just passes out. So yeah, pre, pre-lockdown, um, I, I need to say this um, for the record. I went to see um, Caleb Femi, my friend, and the poet filmmaker who has his first collection coming out on Penguin in July called Poor. And yeah, it was really cool to see him. And we spoke about everything from architecture to writing to filmmaking and uh yeah, it was just me, him, and his cat, so it was nice. And two metres between you, right? Yeah, and a really a good social distance between us. <laughs> It'll be a really good listen, so yeah. So check out, look out for that on Friday. That's Friday, when, yeah. Yeah, we'll, that'll be dropping. So right. I'd like to say thanks again to So and to Preeti for that really insightful conversation, um, and I hope that you're all keeping safe. Yep, yep. indeed. Awesome. Keep safe, stay well. Stay safe. Stay safe and read books and also order books. Yeah. Email again. I've got the email podcast at burlyfisherbooks.com or DM us on Insta or Twitter if you get the hankering. All right. Well, I think that's all for now. Thank you from the team here at Burley Fisher and stay safe. Burley Fisher's Isolation Station is a product of the team at Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were Dan Fuller, So Mayer, Sam Fisher and Anthony Hurley, joined by Pretty Tanager. This show was produced by Dan Fuller and made possible by the passion of our listeners and customers. Thanks a lot and stay safe out there. <laughs>